Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. Previously on Dakota Spotlight. Back when that thing happened, it seemed like it was kind of swept under the rug, you know. It's kind of expected when you live in a small town, everybody knows pretty much everything. He was just an all-around good guy. Morton County Sheriff Kyle Kirchmeyers ruled out foul play as a cause of death for 51-year-old Victor Newberry of Glen Ullen. He would have walked that quarter mile. He would not have stayed there. Somebody told me there was a guy, too, with him. But we told the authorities about it, so we don't know how far that went. They sh- he, he never showed up, and they did come back. I would like to know who those people were that came in that bar that night that we've never seen before, and we haven't seen since. And why nothing ever became of this, I don't know. A few weeks into this journey, I was starting to feel like I might not be able to deliver on my promises. When I began on this trek, I felt confident that facts, real facts, would guide me to the truth and I would be able to provide that truth to Victor's friends in Glen Ullen and to Victor's kids and family. I thought I could give this story a proper resting place, something better than a bar stool. Over the course of a few days though, I experienced several setbacks. I felt I was swimming upstream like something or someone was trying to tell me to throw in the towel. These setbacks were of two types, one of which I could accept, but the other one I struggled to understand at all. Dead ends are one thing. A dead end is a dead end, and that I could accept. That is just part of the hunt for facts. For example, I had a dead end when I was looking for the significance of a lanyard from the village that family service center in Bismarck who treat people addicted to meth and other substances. What does it mean to have a lanyard from the village, and why would someone wear it, and why would it be dropped outside of J.R.'s bar on the night Victor died? It was the only potential lead I had on the three strangers, and so I hung on to it dearly. But, as I said, it was a dead end. The administration at the village had no knowledge of any such thing. Overseeing the Bismarck office, who's been here 20 years, and another gal who's been here eight from Workside Development, and none of them ever recall a village lanyard being in production. Another simple dead end was the response I got back from the FBI. You may remember that I sent off a Freedom of Information Act request to them about Henry Palazzo. With all of those rumors about organized crime, I thought it was a good idea to see what might possibly come back from them. But that, too, was a dud. The FBI had nothing on Henry. Yes, dead ends are dead ends, but another type of setback I started running into, and which I could not quite accept, was the unwillingness of others to help find answers. I started again to think about what some people had told me on this journey. A guy named Myron, who I spoke with early on, he had told me that he felt like the whole thing had been swept under the rug and he summed up his whole stance on it in a fairly sad manner by saying that he felt that it just didn't seem like anyone cared. 
I started to think that maybe Myron was at least partially right. I knew that I cared, and that Victor's family cared, and that Ray, Brad, Donna, Doug, and Stephen all cared, but I wasn't sure that anyone else did. For example, I wanted to get an idea of how long it might take a person to freeze to death that night. The temperature that night, according to the Bismarck Tribune issue of December 26th, was expected to drop to 5 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 15 Celsius. But I wanted to know how much snow was on the ground, and if it was windy in the ditch, and other things that might contribute to hypothermia. So I contacted someone who I had learned had been there, and seen Victor laying there dead, with their own eyes. But it turns out that talking about the weather isn't always a benign topic. So you're saying there's, there's something regarding, regarding the weather or the temperature that concerns you to share with me? Another speed bump I ran into was that two people decided not to speak with me about this story. It's hard to say which is the more disappointing of the two, and in fact I've not given up. This goes for anyone who declined to speak with me previously. You are more than welcome to do so now. I want to tell everyone's part of this story. One of the two people who declined to speak with me was Daniel Johnson, not his real name, the man who came across Victor in the first place and who made the 911 call. The other person was a woman I will be calling Sharon Hunter and who was Victor's girlfriend at the time of his death. I spoke with Mr. Johnson very early on while starting off on this story. I explained to him how you, the listeners, and of course me too, would love to hear his story about that morning and to get his help in telling the complete truth of Victor's death. Mr. Johnson was very receptive at first, but as of the time of this recording, he has changed his mind and declined to take part. Sharon Hunter lives in Bismarck, North Dakota today, somewhere, and I had and still have all kinds of questions for her. I spent a lot of time trying to find her, and finally, I was able to communicate with her through an associate of hers on Facebook. I don't want to get into the details, really, but let's just say that it was made clear to me by this associate that I should stay away from Sharon Hunter. I have not given up hope, though, and Miss Hunter is always welcome to reach out at any time. At the time of this recording, that has not yet happened, and I may try to approach her again. Certainly, here in the United States, we feel that we live in a free country, and certainly these persons have absolutely every right in the world to decline to take part in this story. There is no doubt about that. But, because it is a free country, I will exercise my freedom to speak by saying, I didn't quite understand it or accept it. I became confused again by that thing that Clyde Bowman had told me, that people in small communities are accountable to each other. I didn't know what I was missing, but I was certainly missing whatever point he was trying to make. Accountable how in this instance? How was this being accountable to Victor and his life? Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Just when I was at my most discouraged point, 
I finally got a hold of an incident report about Victor's death from the Morton County Sheriff's Office. It is 11 pages long, and in this episode, you're going to hear it in its entirety. I'd like to say that you're about to find out the truth of what happened to Victor, but I don't know that it's that simple. In fact, I know it's not. A more scientific way of describing it has to be that you're about to find out what happened that night according to whatever information the sheriff's office gathered, compiled, and then recorded. As you will understand in a moment, whether the information they got is accurate and true and complete, well, that's not possible to say for sure. You are about to hear a voice actor read an 11-page police report compiled by the Morton County Sheriff's Office regarding Victor's death. There are three sections to this report. The first section was written by the first responding sheriff's deputy. This was Deputy Kreisen. The second section was written by the detective who investigated Victor's death, Detective Sharp. The third section, which I will be reading, is very brief and quite strange, I must say, and it was written by another deputy. There are a couple things I need to point out to you about these reports and about how I'm providing them to you. First of all, there are a couple redactions and name changes. These are my changes, not the sheriff department's. Before each section, I will tell you which names have been changed. I am also bleeping out a word that is offensive. We know it as the N-word. It exists twice in this report, and I'm not comfortable including that word in my podcast, so I'm bleeping it out. The sheer nature and purpose of a police report makes them a little bit repetitive. You will hear a lot of she stated, he stated, they stated. It doesn't make for the most lyrical prose by any means, but that's not the point. I want you to hear exactly what the police say happened to Victor, and so I asked someone to read it just as it is. Let's start with the first police report by Deputy Kreisen. In this report, I have changed the name of two people. One is the person who found Victor and who called 911. We are calling him Daniel Johnson. I'm also changing the name of Victor's girlfriend at the time to Sharon Hunter. I was dispatched to the report of a vehicle in the ditch and a male lying next to the vehicle on 66th Street, about a mile north of Glen Olin on Saturday, December 27th, 2014, at 7.45 a.m. I arrived on scene and found a white Chevrolet Blazer in the east ditch facing west. The headlights were on and the vehicle was running. The driver's side door was open and a male was lying on his back in the snow near the open driver's side door. I then spoke to the reporting party, Daniel Johnson of Glen Olin, and he explained that he was driving by and he saw the vehicle in the ditch and stopped. Then he noticed the male lying beside the vehicle. The Glen Olin ambulance arrived on scene. I then walked into the ditch to check on the male. He was lying on his back and his left arm was flexed and appeared to be resting on his chest. The male's right arm was partially extended to his side. I noticed what appeared to be blood on the male's wrist. The male was foaming from the mouth and had a smear of blood on his right cheek. I saw blood on the front of the male's shirt and his jeans were unbuttoned partially pulled down exposing his thermal underwear. Three members of the Glen Olin ambulance crew entered the ditch to check on the male as well. It appeared to me that the male was deceased. 
I touched his left arm and it was stiff with rigor mortis. I advised the ambulance crew on scene that the male was deceased and I had dispatch contact the coroner and a highway patrolman because I thought I was dealing with a traffic fatality. The ambulance crew exited the ditch. While I was on the phone with Dr. Addy explaining the situation, Dwight from the ambulance crew asked if he could turn off the vehicle and close the open door. I told him to go ahead. The male's wallet was laying on the ground and I found his identification card in it and was able to identify the male as Victor Newberry. One of the ambulance crew was familiar with Newberry and told me he had been working at JR's bar the night before. As I examined the scene, it became apparent that it was not a traffic accident. There was no visible damage to the vehicle. It appeared Newberry had driven into the ditch and was unable to drive out in the dark. I photographed the area and found shoe prints on the passenger's side of the vehicle that were consistent with the shoes worn by Newberry. There were also two dirty handprints on the passenger's side of the blazer, possibly from Newberry walking to the passenger's side front door and holding onto the vehicle for balance. Near the front door on the ground, I found two envelopes and a bank receipt that belonged to Newberry, suggesting that he opened the passenger door to look for something after he became stuck. I photographed the handprints in the papers and collected the paper into evidence. Highway Patrol Malafa arrived on scene, and I explained the situation to him, and he agreed that it did not appear to be a traffic fatality. I contacted Marvin Wetzel Jr., the owner of JR's bar, and informed him of the situation and asked him if there was any information he could give me on Newberry. Wetzel told me that Newberry did work at the bar last night, but left around 11 p.m. unexpectedly. He told me that Carrie Billman called and told him Newberry left and she would watch the bar, but needed keys to lock up. Wetzel told me that Newberry was usually very reliable and leaving was not like him. I asked Wetzel if he knew if Newberry used drugs. He told me that recently he had back surgery and was taking meds for that. He also said Newberry liked to drink Crown Royal whiskey. I asked Wetzel if Victor would drink a lot when he was working, and he said no, that he would usually stay in control at work. I asked Wetzel if Newberry had any family in the area, and he said no, but he thought his family lived in Georgia. I asked Wetzel if there was anyone that Newberry had a problem with that would cause him to leave work like he did. Wetzel told me that the only person he could think of that had a problem with Newberry was Henry Palazzo. Wetzel explained that Palazzo was dating Newberry's ex-girlfriend, Donna Chance, and Henry Palazzo has had a problem with Newberry ever since they started dating. But other than that, he could not think of anyone that had a problem with Newberry. Wetzel told me that when he was at the bar dropping off keys, Henry Palazzo came into the bar around midnight, ranting about something, and said, Killed him fucking Nick, used in the bathroom, and then left out the back door of the bar. I examined the area farther, and when the sun came up, I found tire tracks consistent with the tires on the blazer. The tracks drove into the ditch and toward the east along a trail, driven by four-wheelers. 
I photographed the tire tracks. While I was examining the tire tracks, Newberry's girlfriend, Sharon Hunter, arrived on scene and spoke to Malafa. Malafa allowed Hunter to see Newberry's body from the road, then he took her back to the car she arrived in and spoke to her there. Malafa finished talking to Hunter and told me that she had last talked to Newberry at 8.05pm while he was working at the bar. I then spoke to Hunter and asked her to sit in my patrol car while we spoke. I asked her when she last talked to Victor and she told me 8.05pm. She verified the time with her cell phone. I asked what she talked about with Newberry. She told me she asked if he was still busy and how it was going. Hunter also asked Newberry if Henry was in the bar, and Newberry told her he was, and that he was being nice to him. I asked Hunter if Newberry was taking any medication. She told me that Newberry recently had back surgery and was on muscle relaxers and pain meds for this. I asked if Newberry drank enough to get drunk while he was at work, and she told me that he drank Crown Royal, but usually didn't drink till he was done at work, and when he left work he usually came straight home. I asked Hunter if there was any reason Newberry would be in the area where he was found, and she said no. He did not know anyone that lived in the area of 66th Avenue. Hunter told me that she wanted to let me know that Newberry had recently bought an axe handle and put his name on it and brought it to the bar for protection, saying he never knew if someone was going to jump him at work. Hunter told me that Henry Palazzo had threatened Victor. I asked her if Newberry had a cell phone, because I could not locate one in the car or around his body. She said yes, and that it had a gray case on it. I thanked her for speaking to me, and told her that I would contact her to find out exactly what meds Newberry was taking, because the coroner would need this information. It was at this time Dr. Addy arrived. Addy, Malafa, and I re-entered the ditch, and I explained what I observed to Addy. Addie brought a body bag and placed it next to Newberry. Then he examined the area and Newberry's body and was unable to see an apparent cause of death or any signs of trauma. Addie told me the foaming of Newberry's mouth could be a sign of illegal drug use and possibly be a cause of death. Addie determined that an autopsy would need to be done to determine the cause of the death and made arrangements with the state medical examiner. I then contacted dispatch and asked them to have the on-call detective call me. Detective Tom Sharp called me and I explained the situation to him. Sharp told me he was on his way to my location. While I waited for Sharp to arrive, I contacted Hunter to get a list of Newberry's medication. She told me, Diazepam 5mg, 1 tablet 4 times a day is needed. Hydrocodone slash APAP one to two tablets every four hours is needed for pain. Aleve liquid gels is directed. I asked her if Newberry used any illegal drugs. She told me that Newberry would smoke marijuana to cope with his back pain, but he did not use any other drugs. I also asked her for Newberry's cell phone number so I could call it to help me locate the phone. Hunter informed me that she was told that Newberry called JR's bar around 2 a.m., and that his number was on the bar's caller ID. I thanked her for the help and told her I would get a hold of her if there was any other information I needed. I re-entered the ditch and approached the vehicle from the passenger side and called the cell number Hunter had given me, but I could not locate the phone. 
I then went back to my car and called JR's bar to ask him about the call on the bar's caller ID and spoke to Wetzel. He told me that Newberry's coat and cell phone were at the bar and the cell phone had just rang. I told him I had just called the phone to attempt to locate it and that I would let the detective know it was there and we would be there to collect when we finished at the scene. It was at this time Sharp arrived and I explained the situation to him. Sharp photographed the scene and then I assisted him in collecting blood evidence. I then was dispatched to another call in New Salem and left the scene. While I was en route back from that call, Sharp contacted me and asked me to get DVDs and go to JR's bar and copy the video from the bar's security system onto the DVDs for evidence. I arrived at the bar and spoke to Wetzel and explained I was there to collect the video. While I was at the bar, Wetzel told me about the axe handle Newberry brought to the bar, and then he showed it to me. The handle is for a pickaxe, and it has Newberry's name on it. I asked Wetzel when he brought that to the bar, and he told me within the last two weeks. I informed Sharp about the pickaxe handle, and he told me to gather it for evidence. I left the bar and will return tomorrow to copy the remaining video. Deputy Kreisen's report ends here. We will now listen in on what Detective Sharp wrote down in his section of the report. I will be making some comments along the way. Reporting Officer Thomas Sharp I was told a 51-year-old male was found dead lying next to his vehicle. I was told fire and ambulance services had already arrived and walked around the crime scene. I was also told the county coroner, Dr. Addy, had already been called, arrived and determined the male was deceased and there were no apparent causes of his death. I told Deputy Kreisen I would be en route to the scene. While en route I spoke with Deputy Kreisen again to obtain more information. I was told the victim is Victor Newberry, who works at JR's bar in Glen Olin. Deputy Kreisen spoke with the owner of JR's bar and was told the following. Victor was working last night and left the bar between 11pm and 11.30pm last night in the middle of his shift. Victor was usually very reliable and it was not like him to leave. Victor's jacket and phone were still at the bar. Another bar patron came into the bar sometime around midnight and made a comment about kill all this individual and Victor had not gotten along in the past. I was told there was surveillance video at the bar. I decided to call TFO Bjorndal and ask for assistance as I processed the scene. TFO Bjorndal told me he would be on his way to the area. I arrived at the scene and met with Deputy Kreisen. I observed a white GMC Jimmy in the ditch. There was a body lying on the ground towards the back of the vehicle on the driver's side. The body was covered in a blanket at the time I arrived. I observed the scene to be trampled on by footprints all around the vehicle from all the first responders that arrived on scene. Deputy Kreisen showed me the tire tracks that led down to the ditch. The ditch where the vehicle went in was very steep and appeared to take the steep approach to the ditch on purpose. It should be noted, approximately 200 yards to the north is an approach with a trail that is leading to the same spot Victor's vehicle was, and it is a much safer approach than the one used by Victor. 
Deputy Kryzen stated he did take some preliminary pictures before the scene was altered. I began to take pictures of the scene. I started the pictures from the road with close-ups of the tire tracks where the vehicle went into the ditch. I went to the trail to the north where there would have been easier access. I began taking pictures to the south towards the vehicle working my way in. About halfway down I observed a footprint in the snow that appeared to be walking away from the vehicle. This print was later found to be Dr. Addy. He confirmed that he only walked where there had been no other tracks and stated there were no tracks walking to the north of the vehicle when he was there. Deputy Kryzen showed me the vehicle tracks that went down the section line approximately 100 yards. The vehicle appeared to do a three-point turn and drive back to where it ultimately came to rest. Pictures were taken with this. I removed the blanket over the body and began to take pictures. I observed a scratch on Victor's right wrist and also a small scratch on his right cheek. There was foam on his lips. I saw three small spots of blood next to his right hand. I spoke with Dr. Addy on the phone and was told there were no apparent injuries to Victor to explain his death. Dr. Addy believed the scratches on his wrist and face could have just been from the fall. He also stated the foam on his lips suggests drug usage or an overdose. TFO Bjorndal and TFO Capella arrived to help, and I asked them to go to the bar and obtain the surveillance video. I later spoke with them and was told the surveillance system was not allowing them to download the video to their jump drive. I called for a tow truck to come to my location and tow the vehicle to the sheriff's department. I followed the tow truck and vehicle to the sheriff's department, where it was secured in the garage of the LEC. At this point in Detective Sharp's report, he moves forward a day to Sunday, December 28th. On that morning, Detective Sharp got a call from the sheriff's office that there was a woman named Tiffany Elwood who wanted to talk to him about Victor's death. Tiffany Elwood is one of the strangers, not the blonde, but the dark-haired woman. On Sunday morning, I received a phone call from dispatch advising me there is an individual wanting to speak with me about this incident. I was told to call Tiffany Elwood. A short time later, I called Tiffany, and she stated she was with Victor that night and was with him at the vehicle where he was found. I told her I would like to speak with her in person, and she stated she was already at the sheriff's department. I told her to wait there, and I would be on my way. A couple of things to note here. The following passages in the police report refer to all three of those people we have been calling the three strangers. Due to many factors, I'm not comfortable using their real names at present, so their names have been changed. The three name changes are Tiffany Elwood is the dark-haired woman, Ashley Omdahl is the blonde woman, and Dave Fry is the dark-haired man. I arrived at the sheriff's department and met with Tiffany at approximately 10.35 a.m. We went to the interview room in the basement of the LEC. This interview was audio and video recorded. I explained to Tiffany she was not under arrest and was free to leave at any time. Now this is probably the moment where you're expecting this podcast to switch from the simple narration of a police report to the actual audio recording of Detective Sharp's interview with Tiffany Elwood, the woman who says she was with Victor at the spot where he was found dead. As a podcaster and storyteller and as someone in search of the truth, I too expected and hoped that you and me and Victor's family and friends would all be able to listen in on this very important interview. 
but that apparently is not a possibility. The reason for that is not because such evidence would be confidential or unavailable to me or you or anyone else when requested properly. No, the reason we can't listen to this video and audio recording is because, unfortunately, the sheriff's department told me they cannot find it. I don't know what word to use here exactly because I don't even want to accidentally infer anything, and I am not a conspiracy theorist. But that is the unfortunate situation. The fact remains that we can't hear what Tiffany Elwood told law enforcement because the recording of the interviews cannot be found. And this interview recording is not the only thing that could not be found. For example, the surveillance video from JR's bar is also gone, as well are a couple of other things. But I do also want to say that the Morton County Sheriff's Office did provide me with a lot of other things regarding this case, and they were certainly much more cooperative than law enforcement departments and agencies that I've come across previously. Compared to the state of Montana, for example, the Morton County Sheriff's Office received me with open arms. In a future episode, perhaps, we will talk more about what happens when law enforcement loses or discards evidence, because I looked into it a little bit, and I was surprised with what I found. Who knows, maybe even someone from the state's attorney's office or the sheriff's department will sit down and explain it to me and you, the listeners of this podcast, in a recorded interview. Meanwhile, without access to the audio recording, what we will rely on is Detective Sharp's report from the interview. So we should get back to that, but there are two things coming up that need explanation. Teen Challenge is a Christian, faith-based drug and alcohol treatment program in North Dakota, similar to the village that we discussed before. They treat people addicted to meth and other drugs or alcohol. It's called Teen Challenge, but they treat young adults as well. And also, the small town of Elgin, North Dakota, lies 35 miles south of Glenolin. So now, finally, let's return to Detective Sharp's interview with Tiffany Elwood. Tiffany stated she was out on pass from Teen Challenge. She and her brother Dave Fry were both on pass and were at their family's residence in Elgin. She stated they went to a bar in Elgin and had a few drinks in the early part of the day. She stated her and her brother were hungry and were told if they went to Glen Olin, JR's bar had really good hamburgers. She stated her and her brother drove to Glen Olin. She had never been there before and began to have drinks between JR's bar and Doc's bar. Tiffany told me while at JR's bar, Victor was the bartender and was making her drinks for free. Victor was drinking with her at times. Victor gave Tiffany some marijuana and papers so she could roll a joint. She stated she remembered going to her car where her brother rolled the joint for her. She stated she doesn't remember smoking the joint, but stated she believes she did at some point because when she got back to her car the next day, her vehicle smelled like marijuana. She stated this was the point where things became fuzzy for her. Tiffany stated she remembered dancing with her friend Ashley Omdahl. Ashley was also in Teen Challenge, and Tiffany called her to come to Glen Olin to drink with her and her brother that night. Tiffany stated the next thing she could remember from the night is she was in Victor's vehicle, and they were in a ravine. She told me Victor wanted her to get on top of him to have sex. She told Victor she didn't want to do that, and he respected her decision. 
Tiffany could not remember if Victor's pants were up at that point or not. Tiffany said Victor got out of the vehicle to use the bathroom, or at least that is what she thought he was doing. After five to ten minutes, Victor had not come back into the vehicle. She went outside and found him lying on the ground. She stated he was too heavy to pick up. Tiffany couldn't remember for sure, but thought Victor was breathing and making noise, and only appeared to be passed out. Tiffany stated she did try and drive his vehicle when she could not get him up, but it was stuck. She stated she went to get her purse and left. She went to get her purse and left. Imagine you're sitting in a friend's car or pickup truck just off of a gravel road. You've been drinking alcohol and having a good time all day. It's about 11.30 p.m. and it's cold outside, below freezing. There's snow on the ground, you're about a quarter mile from the nearest house in town, and about a mile from the bar where you've been spending most of your evening. All of a sudden, your newfound friend passes out and is lying in the snow, and you're unable to pick him or her up. To make matters worse, you can't drive your friend's car because it seems to be stuck in the snow. What do you do? What would your solution or strategy be to deal with this situation? For those of you with no experience with cold weather at all at this temperature, I'll let you know that you could easily walk a quick mile without freezing to death. It's cold, but not so cold that you will die that quickly. Oh, and we're also finally about to find out why Doc's bar called the sheriff's department approximately 20 minutes later at a quarter to midnight. Tiffany walked back to town. I asked how she knew where town was, and she stated she could see the lights of town and begin walking on the road towards the lights. She stated when she left, Victor's vehicle was running with the lights on. This was verified when Deputy Kryzen arrived on scene, and he did state the vehicle was running. She stated two vehicles passed her while walking, and when she was looking back, she believed one of the vehicles stopped where Victor was at. Tiffany indicated when she got back to the bar, she got into an altercation with her brother, and the sheriff's department was called. This is confirmed with Deputy Pastor did get called to the bar. So this was the infamous altercation we've heard about. It wasn't an altercation that Victor, or Henry for that matter, was involved in. Doc's bar called the police at 11.50 because Tiffany, Ashley, and Dave were arguing. In fact, I would discover later that Tiffany punched her friend Ashley in the face. According to my calculations, it would take about 17 minutes to briskly walk back to the bar. In fact, I've walked it myself. While Tiffany is spending time punching friends in the face, Victor has been laying on the ground for 20 to 30 minutes. He needs help, and he needs help now. And because of the disturbance, Morton County Sheriff's deputies are in Doc's bar. A great opportunity for Tiffany to get help, right? But the next thing mentioned in this report is this. Tiffany claims she decided to get a ride back to Elgin with a bartender who worked at Doc's bar. There is no mention of Tiffany telling these officers that a man needs help. 
Tiffany stated after the bar altercation, the bartender at Doc's bar offered to give her a ride back to Elgin. She said when they left in his van, she asked him to drive to the area where Victor was at. She stated he drove for a while, and the man turned around and said he could not go any further. This person ended up not giving her a ride to Elgin. Tiffany ended up trying to drive her vehicle. She was stopped by Deputy Pastor and was arrested for a DUI and spent the night in the Morton County Detention Center. And what time did Tiffany get her DUI? At 2 a.m., one hour after the bars close, two hours after the altercation, and two and a half hours after Victor passed out. So, for the second time that night, Tiffany was talking to law enforcement, and, at least according to this police report, supposedly based on an interview with Tiffany herself, she made no attempt to ask law enforcement for help. Tiffany indicated she had no idea that Victor had passed away until the next day when she went back to the bar to look for some keys that she had lost. Tiffany stated her brother, Dave, and her friend Ashley were both back at Teen Challenge. Tiffany had asked Ashley if she remembered Tiffany leaving with Victor and they did not. Tiffany did appear to be shaken up with Victor's passing. At this point, Detective Sharp interviewed Ashley Omdahl, the blonde-haired woman. One note here for those of you who may not be familiar with the term, or maybe you're not even a native English speaker and it might be confusing. You will hear the phrase to hit on. In this context, to hit on someone means to make sexual advances towards someone. It's the same thing as saying to pick up or try to pick someone up in a bar. To hit on. It does not mean to strike someone or hit them physically. At approximately 11.30, Ashley Omdahl came to the sheriff's department to speak with me. Ashley could not picture who Victor was, but was told he had died on Saturday when she went with Tiffany to pick up some keys. Ashley stated she had never been to Glen Olin before and went there to meet Tiffany and Dave because they had called. She stated when she first met up with Tiffany and Dave was at the gas station and they were in their vehicle. She stated their vehicle smelled like marijuana. Tiffany was very intoxicated at that time. She stated they went to JR's bar and her and Tiffany were dancing for a while. Ashley stated at one point the cops were called to the bar because her, Tiffany, and Dave were arguing. Ashley later stated Tiffany was upset and looking for her keys. She thought Tiffany might have been upset about Ashley and Dave hanging out. Tiffany told Ashley the next day she was upset because she had to walk a mile back into town. Ashley stated Tiffany did not know why she left with Victor, but Ashley figured it was probably to smoke marijuana. Ashley let me look at the text messages between her and Tiffany that day. Tiffany was texting her during the afternoon that she was being hit on by an older guy. This was not Victor. The last text message between Tiffany and Ashley was around 8.30pm and she thought that Tiffany's phone battery had died at that time. At this point, Detective Sharp interviews Tiffany's brother, Dave Fry. Next, I spoke with Dave Fry. He provided me with the same details as the others, but was able to add some details. He stated he did not talk to Victor as much as his sister was. Dave stated he was hanging out with Ashley for most of the night. Dave thought they stayed until the bar closed. He stated before they got in an argument, Tiffany stated she had just walked back to town. And it sounds like Dave, Ashley, and Tiffany ran into Henry Palazzo that night too. 
Dave talked about a drunken guy at the bar who stated he had slept with Victor's ex-girlfriend and would tell Dave and Victor was a good guy, then would also state he didn't like him and make comments about Victor both ways. Dave did not remember the name of this guy, but stated he was from Boston. Dave stated this guy was really drunk and was annoying him, so moved away from him after a while. This same guy was hitting on Tiffany during the day, which was annoying Dave. So Henry was making advances towards Tiffany that day too. Once again, Henry and Victor are interested and perhaps competing over the same woman, this time Tiffany Elwood. Perhaps this is just the kind of fuel needed to reignite their rivalry. This guy ended up leaving the bar in a white work truck, but this was a long time before they had left, but did return at the end of the night. Dave stated he was surprised to see this guy again because of how drunk he was earlier. Dave did not hear this guy make any racist comments at any time. Dave stated at one point Victor called the girl to have her talk to Tiffany because they were both native and possibly from the same area. Dave stated he did see Victor and Tiffany hanging outside the bar at one time and believed they were making out. After having gathered all this information, the detective interviewed Tiffany again. I spoke with Tiffany again. I asked Tiffany about Victor having her talk to his girlfriend. She stated she did remember, but was not sure if that was his girlfriend or just a friend. I asked her about the older guy from Boston. She did remember this guy. She stated he was hitting on her and bought some beer in Windsor and left before 4 p.m. She could not remember this guy's name. The only thing this guy told her about Victor was that Victor was the best guy in town. Tiffany did not know what type of vehicle this guy drove and could not say if it was one of the vehicles that passed her as she was walking back. Tiffany did not remember standing outside with Victor with their arms around each other. She did go outside with him at times to smoke a cigarette but that was earlier in the day. She did not remember leaving with Victor, but was sure she would have gone voluntarily with him. An autopsy was completed on Victor on December 28, 2014. The medical examiner stated there were not visible causes of his death stated he was not shot, stabbed, or strangled. There did not appear to be any visible signs of foul play at that point. On Tuesday, December 29th, I inventoried Victor's vehicle, but did not find anything of any significance. There was a Crown Royal bag with miscellaneous change, golf clubs, miscellaneous tools, and a laptop computer, and a case as the only things of value. I did find and picture an empty prescription bottle of diazepam, 5 milligrams, prescribed to Victor. Pictures were taken of the vehicle. On Friday, January 30th, 2015, I received the death report from the state medical examiner. The cause of death was ruled an accident, and Victor had passed due to systemic hypothermia due to exposure to cold outdoor weather. Other significant conditions were combined alcohol and drug use and pulmonary emphysema. Let's talk about this. So basically, according to the medical examiner, Victor froze to death because he was laying outside too long in the cold. Classic hypothermia. Alcohol contributed, he says, and perhaps what he means by this is the fact that due to the way alcohol affects the brain and body, a person does freeze to death quicker if they've been drinking. Or maybe the medical examiner is speculating that had Victor not been drunk and on pain meds, 
and possibly marijuana, and maybe even ecstasy. Maybe he would have never passed out in the first place, and therefore he would not have frozen to death. Pulmonary emphysema, by the way, is a breathing condition that many smokers adopt over a long period of time. It makes breathing more difficult. Because Victor was a smoker, it's not surprising that an autopsy showed signs of that condition. But again, the medical examiner says that this may have contributed to his death. It does not say that it itself was responsible for the death. We will look closer at the autopsy later in another episode. I feel that there are a couple ways of looking at these findings and how law enforcement applies them in this case. As we learned in episode 2, medical examiners are human also, and they make mistakes just like everyone else. Obviously, law enforcement considered the findings to be enough for them because Detective Sharp uses the results of the death report to basically put the case to rest. I don't mean to say that I think the detective should have questioned the autopsy. Why would he? As we have learned, people rarely do. I simply want to point out the immense influence that autopsies have on how law enforcement deal with suspicious or unexplained deaths. Anyway, by officially accepting this cause of death, law enforcement are also asking Victor's family and the public to accept it as well. Okay, let's say that we all accept it. Let's say for a moment that Johnny Newberry, Victor's son, accepts the findings in this police report and autopsy. His father died from hypothermia. Let's say you accept it, I accept it, everyone accepts it. In that case, the official line of reasoning must be that Victor could possibly be alive today, right? He didn't die from a gunshot or a stabbing or a heart attack or a brain aneurysm. He didn't die suddenly, he froze to death slowly, or perhaps fairly quickly, but not in an instant. And therefore, according to this official version of Victor's death, if Victor had been moved indoors quickly, he might be alive today. Imagine the same story, but mostly reversed. Imagine they took Tiffany's car, not Victor's. Imagine Tiffany passes out in the snow, and for whatever reason, Victor cannot pick her up. After all, he did just have back surgery. He has no working cell phone. Tiffany's car is stuck, so he can't drive to go get help. Same story, but reversed. Imagine Victor walks back to town. Victor gets an altercation. Victor gets a DUI two and a half hours later, and then Tiffany is found dead the next morning. Now imagine, if you will, that the next day, Victor Newberry strolls into the sheriff's office and he says, Hey, you know that girl you found dead outside of Glen Ullen? I was with her at her car. Do you mean that girl we found with her pants pulled down a little bit, underwear showing, blood on her shirt and face, scratch on her wrist, and her wallet laying on the ground next to her? That girl? Imagine Victor saying, Yes, that's the one. I thought she just passed out. I couldn't pick her up, so I walked back into town, and I got a DUI trying to drive home. Does that change the story? And if it does change the story, what does that mean? What does that say about me and you and law enforcement, the media, and the way we all look at things like this? What do you think? Would law enforcement have done anything differently? Would the press have written more than those three or four sentences they jotted down about Victor's death? 
Finally, I will read a third part of the police report. It's a little strange, I think, and it's very brief. Reporting Officer James Ellison. On January 7th, 2015, at approximately 5 a.m., I located a brown paper bag inside the door drop box attached to the Glen Ullen Police Department. It was unknown how long the bag had been inside the door box and unknown who put it there. I opened the bag and saw what appeared to be a human hair and a keychain. The outside of the bag indicated it was related to the Victor Newberry incident. I transported the bag and its contents to Mandan and placed it inside Sergeant Sharp's office. It may interest you to know that the keychain mentioned in this bizarre report, that was another thing that the Sheriff's Department could not locate. Just like the audio and videotaped recording of the interviews with Tiffany, Ashley, and Dave, and just like the surveillance video gathered from JR's bar, the keychain mentioned in Deputy Ellison's report, and I assume the human hair that came with it, that is also missing, or gone, or lost, or discarded, or whatever the proper terminology is. I, for one, will not even pretend to know what that word should be. After reading all three of these police reports, I sent a list of follow-up questions to the Morton County Sheriff's Office. In a future episode, I want to tell you about my questions and what answers they provided to me. Next time on Dakota Spotlight. They were very professional, but at the same time, there's just always been something in the back of my mind that this does not fit right with this whole situation, um, especially this woman. Hello, you have reached the Bismarck District Parole and Probation Office. For appointment scheduling and questions, press 1. I mean, for lack of better words, excuse me, it's fucked up that it's like that. Like, really, honestly, I mean, you can say whatever, you just didn't give a shit about it. Sorry to bother you. I'm looking for an Oh, uh, I'm not sure. Right, sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. When you go to a bar, you don't know who you meet. You don't know what their background is. If this person is not someone you see on a day-to-day basis, um, this person just showed up in town, uh, sat down to the bar. No one in town knows this person. Anything's possible. Next right. And just not leave him there. That is a wanton disregard for someone else's fucking life. Let me ask you that again. The police did not tell you there was blood at the scene? No, they did not. And where was the blood found? You have been listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 1, the story of Victor Newberry. Music provided graciously by Julia Kent. Visit juliakent.com to learn more about Julia and her amazing work. Dakota Spotlight is produced by Everything Midwestern LLC of North Dakota. My name is James Walner. Visit dakotaspotlight.com for more information. Fellow podcasters, writers, researchers, investigators, and other curious and restless souls interested in a possible collaboration in the future, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and see you next time.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.